Coming up on episode 29, Sage is objectively wrong. Adam has too many XCOMs. And another question, why don't we talk about legacy board games? So yeah, legacy. Uh, we were going to do a different topic, but we just played Seafall and really want to talk about legacy games. Do you want to talk about legacy games, like give us an overview? Sure, yeah, I'll start with that. Uh, I think that the three games we talk about is kind of dictated by the topic this week, so we're trying something new. Um, though I do actually have a bonus one. Oh, sweet. Anyway, legacy games. Uh, the, the first one here being Risk Legacy. Um, the... The legacy in the title uh, refers to the fact that you permanently modify the game by playing it. Uh, so, for example, in Risk Legacy, um, no spoilers for later stuff because there are surprises later on. Uh, you set up the game and it, you choose a faction and you get to choose between, I think it's two or three starting bonuses for your faction. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones the game tells you to tear up. You will never use them again. Throw them in the trash. Uh, and then later on, you do things like uh, found a city by sticking a sticker on the board and writing the name of the city on it in permanent marker. Uh, so the whole the whole gist of the game is that you permanently modify the game by like modifying components. Um, it's a little bit like RPGs. There's a lot of legacy elements to RPGs, but there, uh, since typically we're doing things with pens and paper and dice, uh, it feels much more reversible. Like, I'll erase this again, and my character can be back to the other way. Um, and we don't do that because we agree in the fiction it happened. But there's less of a, like, oh, I, I burned that adventure. Uh, I'm never, you're never going back there. Um, I, tore, I tore that section out of the setting book uh, because you can't get there anymore. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's Legacy in a Nutshell, which I think dictates uh, the three main games that we talk about. Yeah. Um, the first one, obviously, being Risk Legacy. Which is the first one that we are aware of. Like, Legacy is kind of a weird-style campaign game, because there have been campaign games before uh, where you play multiple sessions, and each session builds on the last session, all this kind of stuff. The biggest thing about Risk Legacy was that it was basically impossible to go backwards in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't say, oh, this campaign went south, so let's start over because you've already written on the board, right? Yeah, that, that's the important distinction, I think, compared to campaign games because uh, something like Descent, um, Star Wars Assault, like they, they have campaign modes where you take a few notes, uh, but you the components never change, so you can always reset to a different state. Mm-hmm. Whereas Risk Legacy, there there is no reset. Yeah, and as we mentioned uh last time about Charterstone being able to, you can play it multiple times. They talked about you doing this in Risk Legacy. Mm-hmm. You finish Risk Legacy and then, cool, you can keep playing basically Risk, but I mean, honestly, maybe 40% to throw out random statistics like last time, again, uh, of the fun of Risk Legacy is these stickers and, and writing on the board. And once you've run out of surprises and alterations and craziness... I mean, it's a it's a better version of Risk than Risk, but I would yeah. it just doesn't interest me. And the surprises, I think, are important. I haven't explicitly mentioned that, but yeah. part of the the permanent adaptations to the game is that there are uh, like sealed boxes or packets or whatever, um, depending on which legacy game you're playing, that you only open when the rules instruct you to. And usually the the condition to open at least most of them starts out being hidden. So you play some and then you, you know, hit some card in a deck that says, okay, now open this. Uh, or often they're goal-driven. Like, you know, it once, uh, without going too spoilery, in, in Risk Legacy there are, um, eventually you get nuclear weapons, and if a certain number of nukes are used in the same place at the same time, you open a thing that tells you what happens next. Which leads to, uh, and, and Rob Davio, who designed Risk Legacy and has kind of pushed this whole movement thing, which leads to games of Risk Legacy where you're not really playing to win so much as you're playing to open a box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wasn't sure 
uh, in interviews I've heard of him, if that is something he really wants to happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, I mean, it's fun. I mean, it, I think that's one of the big things for me is uh, the opening of things. I, I'm definitely in the player camp that um, I my instincts to win and to uh, open boxes are pretty much equal. And uh, especially in a lot of these games, there, there's some kind of balancing mechanism over time where um, in Risk Legacy, kind of the primary thing is more that you become the obvious leader and every, you it's a, enough of a team-up kind of game that uh, being in the lead means that other people are going to take you out. Right. Um, and that actually works as a really nice... Uh, catch-up mechanism because it doesn't it isn't forced on you too much. There's not a, a real explicit catch-up mechanism. I think um, I think the other big catch-up mechanism because we were talking about this with Seafall today uh, is that in Risk Legacy most of your changes you change your your you know character sheet ish a little bit, but really most of your changes are the board. Yeah, and because you don't often. You don't control the space that you are putting your modifications on. Mm-hmm. You control spaces around it, maybe, and you can tr- try to start there. Even your character sheet, you're not required to play the same faction, and in fact, you basically draft factions. Yep. Uh, which means that anything you add, you get this I split you choose type of. Well, I can't give him this power because then it'd be super powerful, and I'm not going to get it next round. Yep. So, which works really well, and there's. Uh... There are a few ways there that you can earmark, uh, in particular, section, certain points on the board. If you right. name a city, then uh, nobody else can start in it. Um, and, and most likely you want to start in it. I mean, it's possible you don't. But, um, yeah, I, in our game, I, I made a good long run of Iceland being my, my home base. Um, and it's interesting because even with that kind of uh, I, I split you choose thing, a lot of the time we ended up falling to the same factions every time mm-hmm. because uh, they did a good job of creating modifications that benefit certain play styles mm-hmm. and, you know, certain things that you want to do. So once you've figured out the one that you like, uh, unless it becomes so overpowered that somebody else wants to steal it. Um, so in, in that one, you write on the back of your faction card who played it each game. And I forget which the name of my faction, but I'm pretty sure I played it all but maybe one or two of the games. Yeah, we played, we played a very long time ago. Another, yeah, like, we can remember a ton of stories from that game, which is great. Um, and I think another huge piece of this is that with Risk Legacy, you started with Risk. And we all knew how to play Risk, and you probably know how to play Risk, because almost everybody knows how to play Risk. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very simple game. And so the first game was, hey, play Risk, and by the way, uh, copy this sticker over and then tear this sheet up, because we're not going to play Risk the whole time. Yeah. And just right there, you have like zero learning time and very tiny setup time. Uh, unlike some other games that we were going to talk about later. Yeah, well, we'll get to the the later games of the series, but that that is a huge strength of the game, that it starts off, um, and it starts off with Risk, which is not really a good game in a lot of ways. Like, it's it's an okay game. Risk um, Legacy's mod of Risk, though, is like the Risk 2210 Risk. So, I mean, maybe Deep Cut. Uh, 2210 <laughs> is you play... You played at most five turns, and then at the end of that, somebody would win full stop. So you didn't have, like, all-night games of risk. Uh, Legacy started with you need so many points. I think it was three points. I think it was three to start. Um, And you get a point by taking somebody's capital or by doing some other stuff, at which point the game is a very quick knife fight in a phone booth 
for mm-hmm. especially for risk. Like, and it has a comeback in mechanism where if you get knocked out, you actually get to come back into the game. Right. Um, and it that helps uh, with one of those risk problems of being eliminated early on and then just being out of the game. Yeah. I mean, you don't have a great chance of coming back to much, but uh, this is one place where the legacy really comes in. You you still can be playing uh, because everybody is going to make modifications at the end of the game, and your modifications are based on how you played. Mm-hmm. So you can still play for you know setting up a win in the future, for example. Yeah, um, so it's it's solid. We liked it a lot. We played all the way through. I'm considering getting another copy. It, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful meld of the legacy concept and a base game that really benefits from it because it starts off with kind of a, a mediocre risk game. Uh, and then it, it helps that it's uh, a gonzo concept. So all the crazy legacy stuff... Uh, I, I don't really want to include spoilers here, but the, some of the stuff you get to later is just wacky. It's all insane. And it's great. Uh, it, it works so well with Risk. Um, mm. And it, it works well with, you know, naming things after yourselves. And, uh, yeah, I think I had Sejavik was my capital because it was in Iceland. Uh, yeah, we it, it plays to the right Gonzo style of it. Um, it. It actually plays into something in RPGs. This is a problem a lot of times when you have a... Um, GMless game and people who maybe don't know each other the, the best, getting everybody into the same tone mm-hmm. and consistent and, you know, not having the, like, introducing your characters and, you know, I'm Glorfindel the Elf and I'm Tom. Uh, I mean, Tom's not even that bad. That, but, you know. <laughs> uh, and Roger spikes a lot. Roger spikes a lot. Yeah, Elfie McLongshanks was always the joke name in my group. Uh, yeah, anyway, like Glorfindel and Elfie McLongshanks. Um, oh, we also had Apple Bottom Fanny Pants. Uh, anyway, like the, the ridiculous joke names. And like it, when you sit down to play an RPG and you get that kind of mismatch, um, it's tough to reconcile. And since you are kind of implicitly a legacy game, you're stuck with some of these things. You know, somebody, uh, I played a superhero game where we had, you know, the alien visitor from another world, and his name was Bob. Um, and it just, it it kind of killed it every time you get to Bob. You know, what what does Bob do? Um, whereas in Risk Legacy, it's all so crazy and weird to begin with that, you know, even though it's Sejavik, uh, it, it doesn't throw anything out. Like, it just keeps on getting weirder. Yeah, so Risk Legacy did some really cool stuff. And... It sold pretty well, I believe, especially for a, a random Hasbro game. Yeah. Like, Hasbro hasn't been really hobby market uh, for a very long time. And so suddenly this thing comes out of nowhere. And I think while there were a lot of people that liked it, I think that the reason that we saw a, an explosion of people saying, I want to make one, designers were like, how can I take this concept and go with it? Yeah. And so there were a bunch of other tiny legacy games that came out almost immediately, right? Yeah. Uh, we didn't play test this at all, Legacy, which was, let's just throw a bunch of stuff on cards and play a fluxy kind of weird game. My mom actually has a copy of that that she keeps on saying we should play. I think it'll probably happen this holiday season, but uh, one of the, the packets there unlocks once uh, a cat sits on or near the box. Right. Like, because that's that's the kind of game it is, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's super a, it's low-key. A, it's a quick cash. Like, on the one hand, I appreciate their concept, it's also a super cash-in thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you come up with a few jokes, and then you just print it. They've, they've done lots of we didn't play test it at all. So it's been around. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very surprised that Flux itself hasn't done a we did, it hasn't done a... A legacy a Flux? Legacy, yeah. yeah, that seems like they're... I mean, I mean whatever. But so there, there's another... F- there's kind of another faction of players that res- emerge from this, though, which is I really want this kind of campaign-style game, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be writing on my board, and I, I want to be able to continue playing it. And so we also saw a bunch of new campaign games, but the really exciting new Legacy game, uh, which we pre-ordered because we had played Risk Legacy, and we were like, oh, this is going to be amazing, 
Well, it's pandemic legacy. The pandemic legacy. Oh, your voice says it all there. Oh man, uh, we know that lots of people really like pandemic legacy. It, it, for a while, it was number one on Board Game Geek. It is a reviewer darling. It is the combination of pandemic, which also lots of people really like, mm-hmm. and legacy, which means that you have this arcing narrative across your entire up to what is it twenty four sessions of play because. Yeah, uh, it's you. It's weird because the board game reviewers that review this well are not role playing game reviewers, mm-hmm. and I believe that that is why they like the story as much as they do. Because in mm-hmm. Pandemic Legacy, you do not really change the story. The story happens to you. Hey, in this episode, this is going to happen. Uh, congratulations. Who's it going to happen to? We don't know, but it's going to happen, and one of you is going to deal with it. There are a few things there where, like, you um, you may not be able to get certain things to happen. Uh, but, yeah, there's not a, not if, a lot. If, if you go and talk to somebody else and you both play Pandemic Legacy, you're not talking about your story because they've never heard your story. Mm-hmm. Which is the Risk Legacy thing is, oh, man, this happened here, and which caused this to happen, which caused this to happen. When you added the extra thing there, right. what happened? You know, where, meant, where was your this? So we have totally different, well, mostly different stories with similar tone mm-hmm. and feel. But in Pandemic Legacy, it's like, well, I'm in June. And the other person's like, oh, well, I know what happens in June. Yep. And, oh, I'm in September. Well, did you do this and this and this in the previous months? Because that's what happens in those months. Yeah. Uh, and so it just felt kind of like we were being railed. Well, and so many more of the unlocks are based on uh, months. Like, the, right. the, so many of the unlocks in Risk Legacy are when this happens. Right. And I, off the top of my head, do not remember any of those being when game number whatever ends. No. Um, there's some of them that I think are, it's very hard to not have happened by a certain point. But there's still variance in where that happens. Whereas, uh, so so Pandemic Legacy, um, it's Pandemic, the, the board game of fighting disease outbreaks. And it starts basically identical to Pandemic. So yes. it does do the same kind of thing as Risk Legacy. And so you start out with basic Pandemic. Uh, and then a lot of things that it adds in are actually things from various Pandemic expansions mm-hmm. with some modifications. Um, but each scenario is a month within this year of a crazy outbreak. Um, and you uh, can try each month twice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's you know some slight variation on if you beat it the first time or the second time, and there's some slight variation in some things that you might or might not have managed to have happen in various months. But for the most part, you just hit the you know this is the month that this happened, yeah. and it it really doesn't feel that interesting to me. Um, the, when we started it, I was so hyped about the game that I really liked it. And the thing that still stands out to me there that that was kind of nice was the um, it it gives Pandemic a weight that I feel like it needs to get away from the um, alpha player problem. So this is the the common cooperative board game thing where uh, if there's no hidden information, or if it says there's hidden information, we all choose to share it anyway, um, why can't it just be one person playing it? And whoever has the best argument for why they're right just kind of starts telling everybody what to do. Um, and, and some games work around this, like XCOM, by adding time limits and, and areas of expertise. But uh, Pandemic, the the vanilla Pandemic, I feel ends up this way a lot, um, especially if there's some players who have played before and they kind of can do the odds more quickly than everybody else. Uh, but Pandemic Legacy, 
um, because there's more on the line, because they're, you know, this city may be from you gone farmer. Yeah, your, your, character your character could, could die. Um, all these choices, it's a lot easier to get into um, kind of interesting, meaty discussions of, yeah. as opposed to, uh, you know, we're just playing this game once. We want to win. This is obviously the thing that gets us closest to winning. Um, because once you have all these, you know, oh, this character might die, then I might have reasons to argue that this character is more valuable than you right. think they are. And we can, there, there's... The stakes are higher. There's stakes. And those stakes help turn it into, it, it was interesting. Maybe it was because we were playing at the office, but um, the discussions felt kind of work-like. Yeah. There was a lot of kind of, you know, different people coming from different perspectives and trying to present the data of why they're right and uh, listening to other people's points. And then we'd all kind of come to a conclusion, balancing those all together. And But we also had a large group. So yeah. Risk Legacy, you end, we ended up near the end of the game, you would have most of the general gaming group here show up, even though only so many could play. Mm -hmm. And for Pandemic, we were all so hyped about it that you, and there was only four players that mm -hmm. could play. We almost always had like six at, at the table. Yeah. So it wasn't just this discussion between the four people playing, although we tried to keep it that way. But one of the extra people would be like, oh, but remember this, and don't mm -hmm. forget this, which meant that these games also ended up being a little longer, yep. and they also ended up being a little bit less, I have an actual weight in this discussion, and... I mean, to some degree, like, the, the great thing about Risk Legacy, or part one of the great things, was feeling like you had a, an element of ownership in the game. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pandemic Legacy keeps the, the ownership in that the game changes, but now it's much harder to tie that to a, a specific person. Because mm -hmm. even the things that it says uh, should, because I believe there's a couple of pieces of information that are supposed to be hidden, or per player, um, but even those, there's kind of no, like... Other than making the game slightly more interesting, there's no reason not to say them. Right. Um, you know, you might as well play open-handed, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, we're, we're the outliers. We never actually finished our game. It's still, or sorry, the, my copy. Uh, I know you had a copy as well. So my maybe... copy is unopened. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's this really interesting thing. And I think another thing that hit it really hard is that it was, it's a co-op. And our group doesn't tend to play co-ops at all. Yeah. Like, we lean pretty heavily towards wargamey or, or very aggressive or very kind of relatively mean games. Uh, and that's probably part of the thing. Like, we hadn't started with Pandemic. We weren't used to that system. So, but I think all of us had played Pandemic before, so it's not yeah. so much that there was, like, a huge learning curve. Right. Um, and, in fact, some people had played it quite a bit, I think. Uh yeah, I don't know. It just it leaves me feeling really cold, and I still have that box sitting there. And uh, I mean, I think at this point, someday I'm just going to muster up the courage to go open all the boxes that we haven't opened because I'm not that interested in actually playing it. Like, I I can't imagine what I get by sitting down and playing it that I don't get by just opening the boxes. Right. Um, yeah, it's 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 very curious. So. Seafall. That leads us, yes, to the most recent, and I would say most unknown. Um, yeah, so what happened to Seafall, Pandemic Legacy came out, people were even more hyped for the next Legacy game that Rob Davio was going to work on, and he said, okay, I've been working on this one for a long time, it's a completely new design, which means it doesn't get the Pandemic Risk thing of, you already know this game, now play this slight modification. It also doesn't get the years and years and years of refinement that Pandemic and Risk got, because they're not exactly new games. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also came out of a new publishing company, because 
Uh, obviously, Risk Legacy, Hasbro, and Pandemic Legacy came out of uh, Z-Men, I think. Uh, and Seafall is out of uh, the people that did Dead of Winter and stuff. So the playtesting and the production quality is all... Now they have to start from scratch on how they're going to build all this stuff, so that took them a long time. And then it was just uber-hyped, mm-hmm. because of course. So all these reviewers grabbed copies of Seafall, and one in particular, Tom Vassell and his group, really didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And because it's a legacy game, and... You know, think about it in the terms of uh, we were talking today about you know catch-up mechanisms in Seafall and how long the game actually is, and it's basically a forty-hour game if you count all of the possible sessions. Mm-hmm. But a forty-hour game, how are you supposed to review a forty-hour game? Well, you do you have to play the whole thing? And I think that after Risk Legacy, where they did play the whole campaign, and Pandemic Legacy, where they liked it so much that they basically binged the whole campaign, they felt like they had to go through most of Seafall. Mm-hmm. So they play three or four games, and they're like, yeah, I'm not a, not a huge fan. And they've already t- spent eight hours, which is more than a lot of the games that they review. And they're like, but it's a legacy game, so we better play at least a game 10, because what if there's a surprise that just totally blows us away? So by the time they put out their review, they had played through a ton of games and continued to feel worse and worse, because you play a game you don't like, it just mm-hmm. makes you feel worse about it. And then they come out with this pretty scathing review of Seafall, and then it kind of just died. I think it was 20 bucks online. Yeah, right now, uh, as of this recording at least, I think it's on sale at 20 bucks, which is a shame because I would argue I think it's actually a better design than Pandemic Legacy. Um, and this, there's obviously a lot of matters of taste there, and obviously based on everybody else's opinion, I'm objectively wrong. But <laughs> I would argue, uh, on my personal rating of the, the three main, because we'll, there's actually a couple of follow-ups we should do at the end of this, mm-hmm. but the, the three main legacy games at this uh, recording are Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, and Seafall. And I would rate, rate them Risk Legacy, Seafall, Pandemic Legacy. And there's a pretty hard cut for me, because especially at 20 bucks, I would totally recommend picking up Seafall, even if you think you're only going to do a few sessions and and say you're done. Uh, at 20 bucks, it's it's a lot. And there's some interesting... We've uh, we completed our fourth, third session today? Fourth, yeah. Um, and it's... It's been, uh, I like that from the legacy aspect, it's been moving quickly. Um, that's also somewhat of a, a, a downside. So since this one is not related to other games, we should probably talk a bit more about the mechanics. Yeah, definitely. So Seafall is a pick-up-and-deliver Euro game with exploration mechanics. Uh, exploration mechanics where you read out of a book and make a choice and something happens. Mm-hmm. The writing is not amazing. Uh, I think it's actually fine. It's, I mean, it's, it's a little over the top. I'm but. comparing to... Uh, above and Below, and I'm comparing to uh, the Arabian Nights, Tales of the Arabian Nights. Sure. And both of those I like much better writing. Okay. Above I'll, and I'll Below, maybe not much better, but Tales of the Arabian Nights is like, I can tell you the story of what happened with this character at the end of the game. In Seafall, it's, here's something, choose whether you're going to be nice to them or mean to them, and then I'm going to give you some stuff based on... It, it feels very Bioware to me, uh, like uh, oh, Mass sure. Effect or um, any or uh, Dragon Age or any of those games. Like it, it, 
Um, there's not uh, like a karma tracking system like in those games, right. but it does a lot of the time feel like you have kind of a this or this decision. Um, and we, it's interesting now that I've said that, it makes me wonder if at some point there will be some options where it's a this, this, or if you have much uh, this much of this thing, you get a third option because that's a common Bioware thing that, you know, if you have this much diplomacy, you get this extra option. But the game does not track how you treat... Because no. it's a very colonial-themed game. And the game does not track how you treat the natives, which would be... Uh, like, I well, would no, like no, that it, much more. It does to some degree. It doesn't... So if this you is, raid them. Yeah. If you do the worst things to them, um, you do get enmity, which is a really interesting mechanic. But, okay, so the basic structure is pick up and deliver. You have a home base. You have ships that sail out to islands, and they get things from them, and they take them back. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that is the, the way you find out where these resources are are by having these little choose-your-own-adventure things, usually, usually only one step deep. But, you know, you you get a little snippet of your captain's log, and he says, should I do this or this? And you tell him what you to do. And usually they're pretty clearly, um, like, mean or nice or, uh, like, push your luck or be safe. Th- those are generally where all the f- choices fall into. Um, but then as you go further on, you get things like raiding, where you can steal stuff at first from the islands and then from the other players um, by fighting. And that gives enmity. Uh, and so these enmity tokens are the more elegant of the game's catch-up mechanisms, where um, enmity at, during the game um, basically functions as extra dice in fights, uh, especially if you are being attacked by that person and you already have enmity with them. The enmity you already have is basically taking away their their dice, which is really nice. Um, it's like it's like a you know France and England hated each other for a very long time, and so they both get to reduce the other player's dice when they fight against each other, because they're all ready for that kind of defensive thing. But it doesn't have to be symmetric, which is the interesting thing. If right. you're if uh, you are the American colonies and you've been picked on for a long time, you may have a whole bunch of enmity b- built up, and the next time they come to attack, you're like, sorry, there go all your dice. Um, it, it doesn't work quite that way in that you don't have the option. Like, your enmity gets used no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also get enmity with the islands, which um, make it harder to raid and make it harder to buy things, which is, uh, in a lot of ways, a better option. Um, th- so this is one of the interesting things about legacy games. There was a unlock based on raiding, and so I love unlocking. I started raiding, and just this game, I realized how much that has screwed me over in uh, the... Uh, market it, yeah. Because yeah, now they're the two easiest to get to islands hate me to various degrees. Um, so I have to sail way out to sea. I mean, there's also the exploration element, so sailing out to sea isn't the worst. Uh, but all these things tie together in interesting ways. I think the biggest downside, um, something that I'm, I'm actually still on of Adam's points here, because it's uh, a Euro game, those tend to benefit learning all the interlocking systems and really understanding them. And when you're adding new systems sometimes every session, it's really tough to uh, get to understand that. A lot of times with kind of your first game with a Euro game, you kind of muddle through and and figure out how everything interacts, and then the next time you feel like you got it. Um, whereas most of the time here, you play one game with a set of mechanics, and then another one comes in. Um, yeah. I, I think that will slow down some just based on the number of chests we have. Uh, but on, Yeah, on Slack we were talking about this, because I don't like it near as much as Sage, but I do like it better than Pandemic Legacy. Yeah. Uh, and I think that a lot of that is that basically every game, I've had to teach it. Yes. And so it's not like... It's not like a lot of the games that we've been playing, because I've, I've been trying to play more of the same game. I get to play 
I've been playing Innovation this week, and I taught it once, and I haven't had to teach all week. So I've been able to focus on playing and getting better, and I'm destroying people in Innovation. But for Seafall, every single game, I need to teach it. And so the first game, I teach it, and that rulebook is not the best, so it makes me sad already. And then I have to focus on the rulebook for the rest of the game, and that makes me sad. I actually think that's a bigger factor than the legacy mechanics. I think that, uh, so we were talking about this today, we really need a reference sheet that everybody can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I was thinking about this today, sure, some of it was the new mechanics from last time. But that was just a few discussions at the beginning, and then we got all those mechanics really well. Um, mm-hmm. So without going into a deep spoiler, we, we just got to the point where we can sail into uncharted waters. Um, and there's a few mechanics around that. Uh, and those we all knocked out pretty early on and, and used just fine. It was going back to things we already knew how to do and had to figure out how to do again that really eats up your time. Um, and I think that's actually my bigger complaint with the game, is the the presentation mostly of the rules uh, I mean they're not the worst but they're there's a lot of things going on and uh, some of the some of the things are not explained the best so for the kind of main dice mechanic is usually um, you build up a pool of dice based on how many like things you have that are adding you subtract some number of dice as kind of a defense mechanism and then you have a threshold number that you're comparing your you roll all your dice you compare the number of successes to that threshold number and you take damage compared to it and as long as your ships don't sink you actually still succeed at that task even if you didn't beat that target number um, which means that it, it's more of a threshold it's like a damage threshold number but in some cases going over it gives you extra things and so so all of these like uh, first of all the that core mechanic is not explained I think that well in the book actually um, it, it took us four games to get to that concise of an explanation yeah and, and then the the little fiddly things that add on to it that you know in this case uh, you know in ship to ship combat, your um, controlling the space gives you an extra die or might remove a die. Yeah, and controlling the so it also has some issues with legacy in that, like controlling the space. Uh, I had been referencing the rule book on a lot of these ship fights, and I left out that rule because we never fought in controlled spaces. Because to start with, only your home bases are controlled, and nobody bothered with that. And then we finally get to that, and we have to say, like, oh, wait. Um, and there's a lot of that kind of, oh, wait, there's an exception to this in this situation. Um, you were saying that it would be better with, like, a war game rulebook. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm used to playing stuff like... Uh, so, so for example, I'm playing Saints and Armor at home, uh, and Saints and Armor is this musket and pike war game where it's... it's there's a lot of war games in this feel of uh, musket and pike and great battles of history where a lot of your turn... It's basically you're going back and forth in turns, and on your turn you pick one of these general things to do, and then almost all of your actions are programmed. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, I'll play Hoplite, and it's like, okay, my my Hoplites are going to charge. Well, that means that for this unit, I do this, and then I do this, and then I do this. And then for this unit, I do the same thing. And then for this unit, I do the same thing. And you have one little procedure on a player aid that says, first do this, then do this. And checklists, checklists make it really easy to not miss anything. Yeah. Because you just... Do them. Like, you read through them in order. And in a game, in a normal Euro game, you don't need checklists because the thing that you do is self-contained, mm-hmm. right? In Pandemic, I can give you this card. There doesn't need to be a checklist because the total of it is we're in the same place, here's the card. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? But in Seafall, you need a checklist because the Endeavor mechanic, the dice pool mechanic, is form your starting dice pool, 
which is uh, relatively complex for a simple rule, and then remove dice based on three or four different things, enmity and uh, garrisons and all sorts of stuff like that. Roll your dice and compare with target number. Okay, that doesn't tell you how much damage that you're actually taking, and that could might sink your ship. Now, if your ship didn't sink and you got at least one success, then do the success stuff, which is different based on the endeavor. So it's like this huge set of rules, and the endeavor rules, because it's a legacy system, there is a section in the book that is two pages, and on one side is the endeavor rules for making your, your dice pool and then removing dice. But it doesn't tell you what happens on the roll. Yep. And then there's a, the other side of that page is if you are raiding one of these two things, here's the stuff that happens. But it doesn't tell you anything else about mm-hmm. endeavors on those two pages. So like to really understand the endeavor rules, you better understand the whole game and all the new things that come up, which means that some of those rules are stickers that are in the book at weird places, mm-hmm. and understand things that didn't get stickers because the game doesn't always add the rules to the book. Yep. It, it is... A little messy that way. It, it's a lot messy that way. Um, but I will say, um, even compared to Pandemic Legacy, I like mm-hmm. the theme a lot more. Definitely. Uh, like, it, it it doesn't benefit from the, the wonderful Risk Legacy wackiness, but it's very on theme, and uh, the exploration kind of Age of Sail thing feels... Um, feels better, and there's there's this creepy edge to it. There's a lot of you know you, the natives on the island are uh, they mention the fire people who fought here, and you're like, what are the fire people? I don't know. Like it doesn't yeah. say anything more. Um, and so there's lots of little hints that there's something else going on, and I, I think we'll probably get more of that. Yeah, and um, I, I think that the story is far more compelling than Pandemic Legacy. Oh yeah. Like for for Risk Legacy, the story was entirely in our heads, right? Yeah. Here's, here's this group, we know how they interacted with these, and they did this thing, and it was huge, and it affected the board, and you can look at that, and here's this other thing that happened. Pandemic Legacy, we were just watching the movie go by, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever. This one, it feels like I have some ideas of where it's going to go. In Pandemic Legacy, we guessed the first two big twists yep. way before they happened. We were yep. like, obviously it's going to go here. Oh, it went there. But in Seafall, it's like, Okay, there's like five hints that are out there right now that I know about, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't know where they're gonna go exactly because, you know, fine the hint says this thing's gonna show up, but I don't know what that's gonna, gonna mean to the game and yeah we have a goal coming up for our next game that says something about like an island marked with this symbol that's just printed on the card, we have no idea what that means like it, and it's kind of fun that way because mm-hmm. um, like we I, I have some guesses as to where we'll how we'll get that information right and like we have one goal that says something about like finding the ancient tomb we have like I actually I have some guesses on that one as well but sure. like there's a bunch of uh, research cards and we are deliberately not looking through them yeah so Sphair and I have been drawing several off the top and it's like well what are these going to be what are they going to look like and I think I know what they're generally all are but yep. There could be one in there that's just totally weird. I think there there is probably at least one in there that's that's totally weird. So. Um, yeah. Anyway, like I I feel like this is uh, uh, unless you are a person who already really loves Pandemic and and just wants a new way to play Pandemic. Uh, I would argue that Seafall is a better game, especially if you find some play aids. There was at least like we've uh, found. One thing that was supposed to be torn up that wasn't clear that it was supposed to be torn up, for example. Like, there, there are a number of uh, little things that, if you go on Board Game Geek, there will be some clarifications that are important. Totally. Uh, and hopefully, somebody has 
carefully grouped those by spoilers. Um, I'm sure somebody has it's Board Game Geek. Uh, but with all that, I feel like you get a a more interesting theme, a more interesting story, and more interesting gameplay because uh, now that we're back in that competitive mode, which granted just benefits us better, like fits us better, mm-hmm. uh, we now can. Uh, the gameplay is so much more interesting. Like this time, we had somebody who was about to win, and so everybody sailed into their home port and just started raiding them. Um, and I went in first with what should have been a, a slam dunk raid, rolled my fistful of dice, and got two successes. Like uh, it was so bad, but like that kind of stuff, like mm-hmm. those those moments feel better to me than anything in Pandemic Legacy did because Pandemic Legacy, um, Pandemic Legacy also felt in a, a negative way, kind of grindy. Like, yeah. the, the grind can feel really good. I've been playing Torchbearer recently, and the it literally has a mechanic called the grind, which is, you know, things are always getting worse as long as you're on an adventure, um, which actually feels really good because you kind of know that, like, you're in a tough spot and you're going to get out, whereas um, Pandemic Legacy has a lot of things where, like, the... Uh, the cities that you save, depending on how messed up they got, will be worse next time. They can, you know, topple and stuff. And that all, it... It, it felt like the parts that I don't like about XCOM. Yeah. My, my thing about XCOM, uh, XCOM, the newer XCOM, I haven't played the old one, uh, is that... XCOM the video game, XCOM not the, the video board game, because I referenced that earlier. That's right. XCOM the video game, but not the one that came out like 20 years ago. Uh, yes. Well, and there's two recent ones now. I haven't so. played two either. Oh, okay. So, but so anyways, <laughs> XCOM, uh, you can get halfway through the XCOM campaign and basically be done. Yeah. And you're going to lose. The only question is how long it's going to take you to yep. lose. And, uh, and Pandemic felt that way to me where, oh, you've been playing pretty poorly in these opening things, so we're going to give you a whole bunch of bonuses to try and help out, uh, but there's only so much they can really do. And so you're going to be losing for a while, Congratulations, and I that's the thing I hate the most about co-op games mm-hmm. is no matter what I do now, I'm probably gonna lose. Yeah. And and, and that uh, that kind of catch-up mechanism is yeah. I think one of my least favorite things about both Risk Legacy and Seafall. Um, because I was talking about how Risk Legacy, the catch-up is relatively organic of, uh, you know, if you're the strongest person, a lot of people are going to come for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you start out with a really good position, people are probably going to take it. And you can reinforce that some, but, like, it's uh, it's such a dynamic multiplayer game that it's really hard to be, uh, because of all your previous wins, so set up that you must win again because you probably have at least two... You definitely have at least two others. It doesn't work two players. So you have at least two other players, probably more than that, who can all gang up on you. And that dynamic always creates a catch-up mechanic, whereas Risk Legacy has to, you know, here's your emergency aid package because you're doing so badly. Pandemic Legacy. Sorry, Pandemic Legacy. Uh, And then Seafall has a mechanic where... um, uh, Oh, this is a minor spoiler. Seafall has two tracks. When you win games, you get stuff that make you better in future games. Yes. So you've got this kind of, uh, the leader's going to get a little bit better, and they're going to get a little bit better. But if you are behind, at the beginning of each game, you will get bonuses, based Mm -hmm. on how far behind you are. So ideally, and I can see the design gears just right in front of my face, right? Ideally... The, the leader is going to get enough of a bonus so that they're not going to lose because of the catch-up mechanism. 
and you will get just enough catch-up mechanism so that you're even with the leader. Uh-huh. And I think that's the hope in the design. But it, but it feels so blunt. It does, because it means that neither of those things seem to matter as much. If right. you win and you get that permanent bonus, you're like... Okay. Uh, That's great, but everybody else is everybody getting else, way more stuff. Yeah, and I think, so as we have more games and more winners, sure. I think that maybe that will start to, um, these things will start to get closer. Uh, we happen to have, over our game so far, I ran out to an early lead on basically all of the games up until today. So today, some of these per-session catch-up mechanisms gave people huge starting bonuses. You got destroyed. I got destroyed today. I I ended the game with just... And I mean, that that final roll really sank me. Up up until then, I thought I had a fighting chance to at least be middle of the pack, and that just... uh, But anyway, like the... But yeah, you had four points to the winner's 13. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty sad. We, well, which will help because uh, at the start of this game, I was 20-some points ahead of the person in last place. Mm-hmm. So, like, I needed people to get closer to me so that they get up. Uh, because I think next time, actually, we already know this, next time I'm still going to be the lead player, which means right. I get no bonus catch-up. Right. Um, and Sphere and I will get our, our gold or whatever we want. Yeah, you'll, everybody gets at least some sort of catch-up, and Sphere won a game today, so he has his win bonus, or his permanent win bonus, which will be with him forever, plus his catch-up bonus. Um, but anyway, all these things feel so... Uh, it, it's the blue shell. It's yeah. the, the really obvious catch-up mechanic that says, okay, we need a way for the person back here to have a shot again into the front, and instead of it being uh, a more subtle thing, uh, it's a more dramatic, like, okay, at the start of the game, you get a whole bunch of stuff because you haven't won much. Right. And it's weird because, you know, looking at... In the Euro world, it's very odd to see games that last longer than two hours. It's individual games, right? Because people tend to not want to play any game that lasts that long. Uh, I think there was a there was a poll on BGG about kind of what length is a medium length game to you, mm-hmm. and I think it was somewhere around 30, 45 minutes for medium really? length. It was crazy. It blew my mind. Uh, and two hours is a very long game to people on BGG. Oh, that's blowing my mind. Uh, Because, I mean, our long games are like, here I stand. Yeah, let's play all day, right? Yeah. And in a 10-hour game of here I stand, like, the catch-up mechanism is we're ending the game because the Pope won. Like, that's the catch-up mechanism. We're playing for five hours instead of ten, which is fine. But you can't do that in the legacy game. So the legacy game that you're playing for 40 hours, and there are very much... I've got war games that take five days to play, right? Yeah. The the 40-hour... Legacy campaign, you can't stop at hour 20 because this person's just too far ahead. So you have to do just hammering catch-up mechanisms. Well, but I think part of that boils down to, um, for Seafall in particular, mm-hmm. the, the first place is defined by the sum of the points that you earned in all your games so far. Mm-hmm. So you, you rank everybody based on their total number of points in all their games so far. Which, which is this really coarse kind of... Scoring. Whereas even Risk Legacy, it was number of wins, which mm-hmm. means that, uh, you know, if I absolutely destroyed everybody in one game, that um, the game didn't assume that that meant that we need to be more balanced next time. Uh, and it, uh, yeah, I, I would get a small bonus out of that. I think part of it is that, Pen, uh, sorry, Seafall has so many more um, 
things that if you're in the lead, you can do more exploring and stuff, which means finding more cards that can give you bonus things. There's a lot of, there's a surprising number of permanent bonuses that are, that just come out during play because of your exploration. Um, whereas in Risk Legacy, most of the uh, big permanent bonuses were either handed out at the beginning of the game to everybody or at the end of the game based on how you positioned, right. which means that there's much more of an opportunity to, like, uh, like everybody stays much more grouped, whereas Seafall has this problem of if you're running away in first and you, you sailed way out and you found the three islands and along the way you, you found an atoll, and, like, there's a lot of things there that are um, that can be at least somewhat permanent bonuses to you. Yeah, it also ends up being this weird thing where in Risk Legacy, a lot of the catch-up was... You could change position, you could change your, your, your faction and your position on the mm-hmm. board every single game. Yeah. Uh, and so all of those felt a little fluid, and so that was a huge part of the catch-up mechanism was if one of these goes way out in front, then somebody can take that one who is not doing very well. Yep. And so it felt, it felt a lot more subtle, right? Yeah. Whereas in Seafall, you keep your faction and your starting position, and a lot of other stuff, well, not a lot of other stuff, as I'll get to in a second, from game to game, so you better have a harsh catch-up mechanism, because if your faction's amazing, nobody can do anything about that. And the startup, uh, like, the starting positions, uh, you mentioned, but they actually don't, well, I guess you can improve them permanently in some ways, but uh, their relative locations uh, don't really matter that much. But in Seafall, you have... You have your own faction that can get amazing, but because he doesn't want it to go way out of balance, he's got these two things that both of us don't like so much, which is the super blunt catch-up, and you don't get to keep a lot of things from game to game. Mm -hmm. I just found something that gave me 20 cash, and that's enormous amount of money in Seafall. And, uh, oh yeah, I found it the turn before the game ended, so it doesn't matter. It's all gone. There's definitely a feeling of, like, the... The resets there are so harsh, um, and it's rough because uh, – so if you're in the lead, uh, if you won the game, you can get things that change your starting money next time, um, which feels much more like because I played well, I got to kind of keep something even if it isn't really keeping something. Right. Um, whereas the catch-up mechanisms, uh, which can give you the same thing, like because you didn't win, you're going to be however far back next time, and you'll get to start with some gold, which is kind of like I get, keeping – I get to start with three money next time. Three extra money, but yeah. Um, I got to start with uh, six extra money this time. Yeah. So so it's, it's just this weird thing where there's a lot of moments in the game that are like that. And I think this speaks to just game design in general. Seafall is a whole bunch of little tiny races. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of objective cards which give you way more glory than anything normal does. And so you'll aim for one because they're all relatively independent. And if you get there first then anybody else that's aiming for it is going to have wasted a whole bunch of their game. Yeah. And it's going to be not so great. So hopefully, like, there's there's mechanisms in there where hopefully every step that you take towards the goal is also giving you a few points because every successful endeavor gives you one and everything you build gives you one, and that's cool. But you miss the one thing you were aiming for, and now you can't even get secondary points for it. Yep. It just hurts. And so there's a lot of these reset points where... Oh, oh, yeah, you were doing that? Well, uh, 
let's just reset all of your progress, and now you have to re-aim. I, I think that's, like, that alone, if um, a lot of these cards, when you tore up the, the main objective, if it got replaced by a permanent but lesser scoring one, that would help some. I, I had this bite me today that I thought I had looked across the table and made sure that nobody else was close to a, they had to, like, sell four goods of the same type in the same turn. So I had, like, uh, I, of course, had to go last because I was in the lead coming into the game, um, but I was like, oh, I don't think anybody ha- else has this, and I maybe they just weren't playing towards it. I'm sure I can get it. And so I sail out with that exact goal in mind. I've got it all set up. And then the next turn, somebody sails back in, and I had missed one cube on his board. He totally had four. Uh, and he gets it. And now the, like, four glory, I think it was, plus um, getting to do an unlock just didn't happen for me. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, on the, on the plus side... You do, all of those are still worth something. You can probably get some glory. You can sell them for a lot of cash. Like, they're still, they're still good, but the fun part of the game that is looking at these new things and getting the surprises and doing a big goal, you lose it. Well, and so while you should be pretty happy, I got to do all, the, I got all this big stuff, you instead have this big feeling of, I'm not happy that you did it. You know, yeah. it's, it's this weird moment. Well, and I think that the point values are, are so large that it's tough to do the, uh, like, they're, it's not just the unlockability. Right. It's, uh, you know, selling those four goods was still worth something to me, but it's worth, um, like, at the best exchange rate... Well, no matter what, I'm going to get at least four points fewer than whatever he sold those for, because he didn't have to sell them into, like, a pit separate from his normal selling. Mm-hmm. So, like, if he, whatever uh, Jeff, who was, who was the one who happened to do that, uh, whatever he sold those for, he got, assuming that he played maximally, the, the most points he could, plus four, because there was a goal. Right. Whereas when I did it, it was worth four points less, and we're playing to, like, 12 points. So the four-point swing is really big. It's enormous. Um, and it didn't get replaced by another objective. Yeah. So like, it's like... You could have picked a different one. And if you had picked a different one, you would already be like halfway there by yeah. now. But because you picked this one, you're, you're kind of stuck. I, I mean, I think that if the torn up objectives, even for just that game, uh, were replaced with like a lesser point version, if it was worth like two instead of four. I mean, you could just have the objectives flip over. Exactly. And on the back side, it says tear at the end of the game. But for this game, do this for whatever. For, you know, half the value or something. Because yeah. it, it just was... Uh, once it's not worth four, the thing that I was doing is now it's really tempting, and this is probably the mistake I made, to switch to all the other things that are now worth bonus points, that are still worth bonus points. And so you just kind of go around chasing those. Um, Like, there's a bit of a problem that, like, the the optimal way to play the game would almost be for everybody at the beginning of the game to say, okay, I'm doing this one, you're doing that one, I'm doing this one, and then we all kind of, like, we can mess with each other a little bit, but we're not competing for the exact same goal. Or draft them. Or draft them, yeah. Um, But as it is, like, you're going after the thing that Jeff was going after. So he finishes it, he gets his four points, and now you are way behind on all of the other objectives. Yeah. So if I'm going after one of them and Sparrow's going after a different one, well, you better not pick those... But we didn't say that we were going after them. So if you pick one, now you're way behind again because I'll finish it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that uh, the the simplest, smallest fix would be, because they're already two-sided cards, but the sides are identical. If instead it was, here's one side, uh, you know, uh, once this is finished, read this entry and flip over. And the other side says, 
you know, two points, and then at the bottom of it, at end of game, rip up. Right. That would still that would be perfect. Um, and actually, they could even put uh, it would only have to flip, and then the other one says at end of game, read this thing and flip uh, and tear up. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of the unlocks, the unlocks happen in the middle of the game, and they usually do some small permanent modification in the middle of the game, and then they give you a box which right. it says to open at the end of the game. Right. Which then means that you've kind of like built up this queue of extra work at the end. Right. Uh, which is okay. I I would almost push even more of that work towards the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it, it's I am still enjoying it more than I was pandemic and I think we are approaching a similar number of No, we played more p- sessions. We have pandemic. played longer amount of Seafall. That's a good point. So so Seafall is is about 2 hour games pandemic was about an hour as as long as we were actually moving on it. Uh, Risk was about an hour games. Uh, and we played 15 games of Risk because that was the, the campaign. And I think we were going to get another box and play through it. Yeah, we talked um, about doing another box and playing through it, but um, I don't think we ever did. Yeah. Uh, but So we have certainly played more hours of Seafall. And I do like it better than Pandemic, but I would put Pandemic Legacy at like a 6 out of 10 mm-hmm. and Seafall at like a 7 out of 10. And okay. Risk maybe at a 7.5 out of 10. Like none of them are games... None of them are games that I'm like, oh, we're going to play this tonight, yeah, kind of thing. So I'm actually, on a first playthrough, I'm definitely in the actually, like, I, I'm excited for our next session of Seafall. I, I was tempted to try to schedule it for tomorrow, not next week, um, because it's the progression of things feels really exciting to me. I think this is also kind of my play style. Like, I, yeah. like, I like encountering new things. Uh, like, this was this was me playing World of Warcraft, was I'd go to the new zone, do, like, just kind of one path through it, see everything, and then be like, okay, well, I'm, uh, the grind part was never, never it for me. Sure. Um, and so for me, the, for the cost of the game, um, it provides enough entertainment. I would rate them higher than that. Um, actually, Pandemic, I don't think I'd rate any higher. That, to me, is still middle of the road. Um, but, like, I would do maybe 7 and 8 or, like, 7.5 and 8. Like, I would go a little bit higher than you um, in that, for me, they, they cross the boundary of, like, of recommended, basically. Sure. I feel like somewhere, for me, somewhere between a 7 and an 8 is kind of the, the boundary between... Um, I can tell you good things about this game, but I wouldn't recommend it necessarily versus the first thing I say is like, oh, yeah, that's a great game. And then I can tell you things that I like. And and for me, both Risk Legacy and Seafall fall into the like, oh, yeah, I like that game. And then I can talk about it. Whereas, um, I mean, Pandemic Legacy is into the like, I'm not really sure about it. But th- there are certainly a lot of games that are in the like, I can tell you some things I like about that game. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think after a couple more weeks... Uh, which I am super willing, like a seven, I am totally willing to play. Yeah. If somebody else is dealing with the work of setting up a game, I'm, yeah. that's the seven for me, is I, I'm totally willing to play. And I think that if we have player aids and I don't have to teach it every single time, mm-hmm. then I am, that might bump up to an eight or even a nine. Yeah. Like I could like it a ton if my entire experience with the game is I get to play the game mm-hmm. and not. Oh yeah, this is how this rule works. Hold on, let me look up in this terrible rule book. Oh, it's totally missing from the rule book. So let's, I guess, house rule it, which means we've wasted fifteen minutes. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, that's that's a difficult thing. So Charterstone, uh, legacy games, more legacy games because there's there's a lot of these. Uh, Charterstone is Jamie Stegmeier's legacy game, and it's also a Euro, but it's supposed to be way faster than Seafall. Okay. It is also a new game. It is Jamie's the guy that did uh, Viticulture, which is one mm-hmm. of my favorite games. 
um, just just this beautiful little worker placement game. And Viticulture, uh, I mean, Charterstone also has player boards that get modified and stay with the player, mm-hmm. and they get modified more than the boards on Seafall, is my understanding. And I've heard really, really good things about Charterstone. What, what is, like, the theme to it? What's uh... Uh, You have... You are colonizing an island okay. as a group, but you are not cooperatively colonizing. Okay. Uh, so you want you want to push your own stuff. Now the problem is, you pull down from two hours to one hour, and it just by necessity has to be a lighter game than Seafall. But I, I think I think a lot of that is we're not reading stories out of a book. Yeah. You know. Um, I think I'd be okay with that. It's interesting that this again falls to colonization because that's uh, something about Seafall that like it it definitely is. Uh, not supportive of the fact that we are, you know, taking over these islands from the natives on them, but it's um, it's not putting the harshest eye on that either. Like it's definitely not condoning it. It makes it pretty clear that we're being awful. Um, but it's it's not really engaging with it either. It's kind right. of like uh, and like you pretty much have to do it to play the game. Like there's no it there's... uses it as a background for Bioware decisions. Yeah, exactly. But, and, and... but those Bioware decisions, as we talked about don't really have long-term effects. Well, and you can never go to the point of like, oh, no, I get to the island and, like, I I treat the natives as equals. Like, that that just is off the table, basically. And you can't get to the island and be like, sure, I will protect this island. You can generate your own society. Have fun. Mm-hmm. There's just no... There's no way to do anything outside of the... I'm going to be Bioware okay or Bioware bad guy. And even the setup, I think, is the the simplest description of, like, the natives and the colonizers in that it, it like, the native, it's it's partially because this is written from the, the journal perspective of the colonizers, but they're kind of written, they're, they're, I think it's avoided words like savage, which are horribly loaded, but it is barely. kind of treating, barely, like, yeah. it's, it's treating them as, um, not civilized, basically. Uh, whereas, you know, if you if you read other accounts of, of like that, that is a very simplified and sanitized version of these in many cultures. In many cases, quite like complex, vibrant cultures that got wiped out, and then you boil down to like the the hopeless savage kind of thing. Like it's uh, yeah, and, and they're yeah. they're just so generic. So so <coughs> Charterstone really quick. You're, it's an empty island. I was about to say, is it an empty island? It, it, it totally sidesteps the entire idea. Yep. I think it's even, you were summoned here by some magical force, and it's an island in the clouds, and okay. you know, some, something way fantastical to just just enough setting so that you can excuse, here is a totally blank green space, and you're going to put stickers on it. Congratulations. So so this is something that I've thought about, um, because I... Well, uh, let's, let's okay, talk about okay, colonizer, colonizers for just a minute, because yeah. it's... it's it's another huge thing that bothers me about it is that these individual pieces of story are totally disconnected. Yeah. Like, you could pick almost any number in the book, and unless it was a huge plot point, which is the occasional objective card, mm-hmm. uh, they're basically all going to be the same. You could flip a coin for basically every single one, and the only long-term effect it's going to have is that one turn you might get this resource versus that resource. Yeah. Your ship might sink, but you'll get 10 gold, or you get to get an upgrade. Like, they, they, here, is a, here is a group of people that you have never seen before and has never seen you. You have a one-paragraph conversation with them, and then they disappear from the face of the earth. You will never hear about them again. It doesn't even matter who they are. They're never named. Yeah. It doesn't talk about who you were talking to on the island. doesn't talk about... It's, they're they're completely generic NPC. It would be interesting if uh, I mean this would 
maybe make it too scripted, but if um, each of the islands, so the island encounters all come out of a huge main book, mm-hmm. and which encounters you have on which island are um, essentially random. You you get to choose them based on you choose an icon from the like the the place that you chose on the island to go on an adventure. It tells you which icon you have to choose from in the book, but that icon is next to several numbers. Um, but it's essentially random because there's no meaningful way to choose, choose between the left. them. The left or the right, they are identical in every way, just like we were talking about a couple weeks ago. Yeah, like, it, it, the decision doesn't matter. Like, at, the, to, at today's game, we finally stopped having the person who explored choose from the book, and whoever has the book already in their hand ready to read just chooses one of them because they are, there's no, you have no context. Um, and, like, that, uh, if each one of them had, a, had been its own little playbook, um, especially if there was still some way that you'd never, that, the in- things you encountered were not necessarily always the same. Like, these are the things that can happen on this island, and maybe the first one's always the same, so you can introduce a few characters. Sure. But then the rest of it is, uh, there's a lot of conditionals and stuff. That would have, like, exploded the complexity of creating the game, but it would have made each island feel like a unique place. I mean, you and, just, yeah. all you'd have to do is change the icon to a number. That's all you'd have to do. Well, but then it was, uh, I'm thinking of ways to try to make it um, still more variable than that. Oh, because sure. Because then we're kind of back into the pandemic thing of like, oh, on this island, you did those things. So did we. Yeah. Whereas I want it to be more like, oh, okay, since I got there first and I had a lot of um, spice on my ship and it turns sure. out they needed spice here, uh, like they were welcoming to me and otherwise this island is always going to be at war with you. But I happen to be, you know, it would be great if there were those kinds of outcomes. If the island um, actually had a population and a faction that was going to be persistent. Yeah. And I think, so Chargestone gets away with, doesn't have a book. It instead has this gigantic box of cards. Mm -hmm. And so the things that you do in Chargestone, instead of saying read paragraph 70 or whatever, it says flip through the index until you get to card 69, nice, and then put it on the table and do whatever it says, right? Uh, And which means that it can do some things like that, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, there's, I've, I've had a drafting legacy game that I've been wanting to build that would do something like that, but there's the amount of state that you have to track, right? Yeah. It's just so I, I think that that would be the complex part is tracking the state. But So I want to go back to Charter Stone for yeah, a second yeah, and this, you know, the, the green, unfounded, uh, like, untouched island. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that that can be a little problematic as well because it's obviously still trying to tell the kind of stories of, uh, like, th- that's the way that... Um, colonizing countries want to describe the places that they got to. Right. They want to say, like, oh, sure, there were some people, but they weren't really people. Right. Like, uh, And so, uh, like, I've run into this. Um, I have a, a setting that I designed for um, Storium that we also use for a Burning Wheel game of kind of this, like, European uh, expansion um, hitting something kind of like America, but there's nobody there. Sure. Uh, and... To me, that opens up a lot of interesting things because you can have it, it's a bit more like a space voyage now. Um, like that, that's the the charitable way to read what I'm doing there is that I'm trying to kind of like do a space voyage, but not have to worry about science as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but practically, it's basically saying, okay, let's whitewash all this and and not worry about the fact that we're actually exterminating people. Right. Uh, and, and so, like, I, I think Charterstone, like, it, it's a sufficiently abstract board game from the, the sounds of it that, yeah. like, it's it's dodging that, but I always think that it's it's dangerous to uh, to sidestep those things too far because you're you're doing a kind of sanitization there. Yeah. Um, yeah, if it was, if it was multiple, if you were expanding, I would worry more. Mm-hmm. Charterstone is a little tiny city on a floating island. Yeah. So I'm less I'm less worried about it. Yeah. Speaking of colonization games and not quite legacy is First Martians, which has come uh, out to uh, 
universal not quite acclaim because <laughs> also because of the rule book which seems to be a difficult thing in campaign mm-hmm. style games so and 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 ignacy trevichek who's the the designer and publisher uh talked about this in a blog post the other day about tutorials in board games where you know if you're playing say charter stone which is an hour long and the first game has to be a tutorial game and i don't I think Chargerstone has like a little tiny tutorial game, but it's mm-hmm. still actually a game. Like the Seafall tutorial game was terrible. Yeah, it, it wasn't as best forward. And, and it was a long game for a tutorial game that was terrible. Yeah. And, and so Ignacio wrote a, a blog post about this because he had just played the Chargerstone one and he had heard all of the complaining about the first Martians one. And he's like... I always skip tutorials in video games. Why am I putting tutorials into my board games if I <laughs> always skip tutorials in video games? And he said that he was okay with the Charterstone one because it still felt like a game. Mm-hmm. But he's like, why can we possibly make a game that you can just play and it doesn't actually need a tutorial game special setup. It's just, you just play. Yeah. Um, and so First Martians, the tutorial game is like, you better build all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but then I'm doing basically the same thing the whole game. And it's really boring. And he's like, but you need to really know all the weird stuff that happens when you build, or you will not be able to deal with later stuff that happens. Yep. But I just did the tutorial game, and then I did one other game, and I was like, eh, there's not enough here. And now it's not going to be there anymore. Yep. And it's like, I, I, I just, it's such a weird... It's a balancing act. Like. Yeah. But I mean, again, in the legacy game where you're drawing on the board, if people don't understand the rules... You're going to do something screwy and not be able to fix it in game two, game three, game four. And we've had a few things. Like, I, I still wonder if one of our stickers is actually misplaced in a place it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's really tricky. Um, we did Enmity incorrectly in Seafall, which yep. we're fixing. We did, uh, in Risk Legacy, we had a rule wrong for a while at the beginning about where we were allowed to write things. Mm-hmm. Um because because of something I can't remember. And so all of these things where your your understanding of the rules better be just spot on. Yep. And if the rules aren't really, really well spelled out, you're going to end up in a situation where you're going to hate the game and it won't be the game's fault necessarily because mm-hmm. you just missed it. So then, then there's another really quick thing before we have to end here. Uh, Freedom of Freeze is doing this fable system, which is, okay... We need a campaign game, we want a legacy-style game, but I don't want to screw with everything. But I still want you to be able to play multiple games. So he did Fabled Fruit, which is this little tiny side collection game, and it's fine. Uh, And now he's doing a bunch of these systems where basically the game is a deck of cards that comes to you in a particular order, and you just interact with the deck starting at the top. So Fabled Fruit had a rule book, and you read the rule book, it was like a one-pager, so it was really easy to understand. And then all the other rules were on the cards, because that's what cards are good for, right? But his new system, he's doing Fortress and Fleek at Freedom and Freeze. He likes F, he likes green, whatever. These are all green F games. He did Fortress and Flea and another one that I can't remember. And the reviews for Fortress make me really want to get it, because basically it's just the deck of cards. There's no rule book. So you put the deck of cards on the table, you read the first card, it says do this thing, you flip over that card, and you go down, and the rules are the deck, mm-hmm. and the cards that you play with are the deck, uh-huh. and you get to a certain point, and it's like, okay, the game ended, cool, take the next five cards, 
shuffle them into this deck, and put all of those back on top of the deck. Uh-huh. So as you play the game, you get further into this legacy deck, uh-huh. but you don't know what's coming, and the game can be simple at the start because it, there's like two cards of rules, right? I'm going to challenge that that's not quite legacy because you can always restore to your starting stage. Yes, and so that's, that's the thing with his campaign games in this system is you can go through and refresh all of the stuff. Yeah. All you really need to do with that game, though, is draw on the card. Yeah, as, and if make you it a full legacy game. Yeah, if you if the one if you knew that certain cards were never going to be shuffled in again, and you tore them, that that would. I think I think you could do it so that every so often you come up with a card, and that card says, "Draw on another card in your hand. Uh, draw yeah. on a card that you got. Draw this thing on a yep. card that you got." Yeah, uh, Risk Legacy had some of that. Like right. at one point, we got cards that we each got to write our names on, and when they came up, they were really good for us. And yeah, but I think um, you could totally do that with this kind of system. And I think that Seafall's failing in being a totally new game with really complex rules for a Euro game, anyways. It, it was bound to be sad for some people. Yeah. Yeah, now I actually want more card-driven legacy games that are... I'm, that I'm are, definitely getting Fortress. That are entirely deck, but, but that go maybe deck plus board and go further down that line of uh, like permanently modifying those cards and, and maybe the big long box, you know, that's explicitly start from this end. Yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Oh, we've got to play more games. I, I want to throw <laughs> out um, a couple of important other things to mention with yeah, legacy totally. games. Uh, I have a game, I don't even know who it's by. I'd have to find my copy again. I bought it at PAX East years ago um, called Legacy of the Slayer. It's a deck of cards. It's a RPG, more or less, but it's a card game. Um, so these cards are all things that you write on to, like, make your character oh, and sure. to modify things. And then you basically, like, kind of shuffle up the deck, and the cards that come up tell you things that happen. And it's it's a little light on the game side of things. Um, it's it's a little bit kind of like, when this comes up, describe how your character faces it and stuff. Like, there, there's not a whole lot of um, game, pl- like, there's not a whole lot of mechanical constraints on it. It's more of a, an inspiration thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it does include, uh, like, permanent modifications to things and uh, all the, you know, it's a really cheaply produced game. So all the cards come together and I believe you kind of play... Oh, I wish I would have referenced it. Since we changed our topic right before, I didn't have time to look at this. But um, I believe that you're, uh, you can play multiple sessions in kind of a season, and certain there are certain things that you throw in later. Maybe I'm making that up. If, if they didn't, they should have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, and uh, I have never met another, another person who even heard of it. Um, I, you should I, bring it in. Uh, it might actually still be at my desk. Um, I think I told you about this once long ago, and I've never been... So it's it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, basically. I like, think you must have Slayer. told me about it when we were playing Shadowrun, because that... Oh, yeah. Shadowrun did... Like, there was a big explosion of pseudo-legacy games, and Shadowrun did a deck builder, a cooperative deck builder legacy game, that and was, we were not fans of it. No, it was it was super bland. The the legacy aspects of it all felt way too minor to be worth it. Uh, I, I was not a fan. Um, so, uh, and then the other one that I think we should mention is Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Right, which has two big reviews that have already come out about it. Because the the uh, the review, uh, not blockade, but whatever it is, embargo, embargo just came just came down the other day, and uh, the Dice Tower group, the Tom Vassell group that really liked Pandemic Season One and really hated Seafall, they love Season Two, mm-hmm. uh, or at least Tom does, and the Shut Up and Sit Down guys didn't like Season Two, oh, which I found really interesting. Yeah, um, totally. So the the Tom really liked Season Two because the story was so much more. There was mm-hmm. more story, much bigger story, a grander story. The Shut Up and Sit Down guys were like, 
look, yeah, there's a bit more story, but the mechanics are not so great. And yeah. so so you, you drop the mechanics that are solid from Pandemic because it's changing the game drastically. Mm-hmm. And now it's another totally new game that's going to Legacy, and story will not keep them interested mm-hmm. if the mechanics can't also support it. And, and it's it's still uh, a cooperative game, which I... Uh, so the thing that I had really been hoping for um, before we played Pandemic Legacy was that pretty early on, the the main virus or whatever would evolve sentience and sure, you'd actually have team game, yeah. a team game, which I thought would be really interesting because then some of those choices that for us were just reading the odds, um, you could totally get into gameplay situations that are more like the... Um, the torchbearer, uh, just because that's what I've been playing most recently, mm-hmm. planning your actions, mm-hmm. where the GM, you know, scripts actions for whatever you're fighting, and then the players together figure out their script. And like, there's a lot of the the way that people, uh, oh. it, it makes the choice so interesting because they're instead of it being a well, the odds are that this will be the next location to come up. The virus player has scripted out their various actions, and you're like, I'm going to pick this one, and they've already set it up. Yep, they've already set it up, because then, uh, having just played Torchbearer last night, this is a really fun thing as the players, Mm -hmm. where you can say, no, I I really think that I know that they will go for this first, because they are, I mean, last night, uh, Torchbearer has the the added layer that you're playing as a character, but we we had a fight against, we were trying to drive off a knoll, and the knolls, this this wonderful modification. Gnolls in this world are ravenous pits of ravenous mouths that feed their god, basically. So they eat everything and we're just trying to get them out of this this uh, cell, actually, so we can use it as our campsite. Um, and so I, I, you know, we're sitting there the, the GM's already locked in their choices and I'm like the way he's playing that knoll I think he's just going to attack the entire time. I, I think he's going to attack the entire time. Let's let's script a maneuver so that we can you know outmaneuver him and then nail him on the next one because maneuver versus attack is a contested role. Only one person wins versus attack versus attack. Both people deal do damage, damage to each other. Yeah. So you know if you can maneuver into an attack, you're doing really well because as long as you can beat them, you are taking away their damage and setting up your next one to be really big. And anyway, I was totally right. It was attack, attack, attack. <laughs> and so and there's that feeling of like it wasn't you know, that we calculated the odds and figured out what the best thing was. Right. We weren't weighing the options to us as much. We were really just trying to guess, okay, you know, it's a little bit of the um, the poker maneuver of like, okay, I, I think that he's bluffing on the fact that it looks like he's going here. I don't think he has that card in his hand or whatever. I would have loved to see that uh, some of that in Pandemic because sure. it would have made those choices it would have, again, addressed that alpha player problem where it's no longer a, I can argue the mathematics of why this is the optimal move. Right. Now we're back to the, like, reading a person and, like, oh, no, I know Adam. I know that he would, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we've, we've covered a surprising number of legacy games considering that we only chose this topic about 10 minutes before recording. Oh, there's, 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 so much, there's so much to talk about with them, and we could probably talk for another hour, but uh, we are long today. Yeah, we're already long. So that's it for our 29th question. Why don't we talk about legacy board games? Another question is Adam Lincolnsop and Sage Latora. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for another question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, anotherquestion.com, has all of our old episodes plus links to all the games we mention in each episode and other bonus material. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question like on Twitter or something. Leave us a review on iTunes or share this episode. Thank you.